Welcome to Brave Dynamics. This is your host, Jeremy Ao. Leadership is harder than it looks. As a proven founder and Harvard MBA, I interview courageous entrepreneurs, executives, and investors every week. I also share my frontline experiences, coaching insights, and own professional development journey. If you're stepping up as a new leader, founding a startup, or venturing into the great unknown, this is the podcast for you. Hey, Jasmine. Good to have you on board. Hi, Jeremy. Excited to be here. Well, it's so fascinating. I mean, we're both part of OnDeck. We met through this great community. And I was just really fascinated by your approach to leveraging AI. And I'm excited to share not just your journey, but also what you see the future is going to be. Thanks so much. We can dive more into this, but we're at the forefront of something really huge and exciting and excited to chat about GPT-3 and everything else that's on the horizon. Awesome. So for those who don't know you yet in your own words, uh, how would you share about your own personal journey? I grew up in Edmonton, which is this northernmost major city in Canada. So think extremely cold, <laughs> think oil and gas, highly conservative, no startups, no technology. I wasn't aware that computer science or software engineering was even a path until I was almost finished high school. I ended up going to McGill in Montreal for university, but I actually started out school in comparative literature. I love books. I love writing. I ended up in computer science after attending my first hackathon and spinning up a website for a nonprofit I was working on. And I was mind blown at that moment, switching to computer science and really fell in love with natural language processing after spending some time in engineering the Bay. So I worked at a couple startups, um, started at Breather, which was a local um, Montreal-based startup, then went to Lyft, worked on their self-driving team, also worked at Square on their capital team in engineering roles. And sort of this thread from writing carried through at that point, became really interested in natural language processing. The fact that we could represent words as vectors was incredible. Did research at Mila, which is the largest deep learning academic lab in the world. It's headed up by Joshua Bengio, who's one of the three godfathers of deep learning, proudly based in Montreal and Canadian. Then worked at Microsoft Research, as well as at OpenAI, right around when GPT-2 was released. And now I'm working on CopySmith, <laughs> which is an AI-powered copywriting tool. We use a combination of GPT-3 and other models to help you draft copy. I think of it as your always-on brainstorming partner, but I won't go give you the full pitch here. But that's how I would summarize the journey so far. And over time, I spent a lot of time between Montreal and San Francisco. I'm currently back in Edmonton. So the circle has sort of been drawn um, during the pandemic. That's amazing. And one thing I've noticed is that you've had an interesting journey where you've not only been thinking about AI, but also about the nuts and bolts, as well as the policy side of it, which is a pretty rare triple uh, hat to be wearing. I'm just kind of curious, what drove that? 100%. My fascination around technology, I think, because I originally came from the humanities, was instrumental. Like I love the pizzazz and the versatility and power of technology, but I was ultimately concerned with how it would impact people. And I know that's almost a trite thing to say nowadays. Tech and society studies have become really hot. Every CS student at Stanford sort of wants to have a philosophy minor, but I think it's truly so important. And how I chose the specialty and direction in which I went 
was a few indices. I cared about how amazing were the people I was working with, how impactful is the technology that we are working on, and the last heuristic is can I influence the trajectory of this to be um, deployed into the world in a more safe and responsible way. So all roads <laughs> sort of pointed <laughs> to a safe and responsible AI. AI is obviously the hot topic of the year, if not <laughs> the decade. Lots of talent is flocking to ro- working on AI. And related to that, and one of the reasons for that is it's making huge impacts on industry that I don't need to dive into, and also has a lot of implications that aren't fully thought out yet in terms of how how can we deploy this in a way that's safe and responsible from an infrastructural level, but also on a consumer-facing level. So many different questions to be like teased out about safe and responsible deployment. So I found it both intellectually interesting, but it also just satisfied those three things, like great people, super impactful technology, and lots of vague or like murky questions around, okay, so how do we make this technology like actually useful for humanity? And beneficial. Amazing. You've also shared that you took classes on the ethics of AI and you know all that stuff. Were there any specific favorite classes or moments that you had kind of like kickstarted that journey for you? I did take a minor in philosophy, and as part of that, some of my favorite classes were in the philosophy of AI and philosophy of science. To maybe pick out a few questions within philosophy of science, sorry, philosophy of AI, we actually realize that if you just look at the history of the thinkers in this field, that these sort of worries that humans have had about machines has been present for almost all of human history. Like this question of, oh, will AI replace us? This was a question asked during the Industrial Revolution. Some academics and scholars have termed this the Sisyphean cycle of technology panics, as in we keep rolling this rock up the hill of, oh no, like, is this next thing going to be the thing? And worries about it happen in quite cyclical fashion, matching sort of the technological cycles. And this is just a pattern that keeps occurring, which is really interesting, which is not to say um, that AI isn't different. I think it actually is different, this revolution. But it is interesting how every cycle people thought it was different, (laughs) that this was the one that would displace human labor in a certain way, affect a revolution that had never been seen before, which is actually, in fact, true. Looking forward and retroactively, we can narrativize it and say, oh, we are happy that we past that cycle. But that was a really interesting insight, just looking into the history of the philosophy of AI, because philosophers have been thinking around the question of AI for as long as the concept has existed of what it implies for natural intelligence. So it sounds like you've been thinking through this a lot deeper than I have, because the way I consume is I'm a big reader of science fiction, and AIs are always, you know, uh, villains or nature, <laughs> and increasingly so protagonists, actually. So some of the best science fiction recently, Ancillary Justice, etc., cetera, um, Murderbot, these are actually taking AI's protagonists, actually, in a story and how they discover humanity. So it's an interesting piece um, that I'm, and trend I'm seeing. So I'm curious, from your angle, like what's your personal philosophy around AI now that you've not just studied it, thought about it, working in it. What's your personal take on it? I'm really excited by AI. I think there's one take that you could take here that I 
also agree with, which is if it's inevitable, we might as well collaborate <laughs> with the AI. Like some people have the refrain, like, welcome the robot overlords. I'm actually of a different view where I'm really excited about what AI can unlock. So as a writer, I spend a lot of time in creative writing. An example of what you might want from an AI. I can't go to a human and say, okay, Jeremy, like I have this paragraph I've written out of this scene. Can you give me 15 variants of all the adverbs that I use? And only the adverbs. Just give me 15 different ones for all the adverbs I use in this paragraph. That's not a good use of your time. But never mind that, it's also not a good use of my time. It takes too much time to specify that instruction. But if it were possible, if it happened naturally over the course of my writing, of course my writing would be better. Of course my creativity would be augmented. I'd be like, oh, I didn't think about using that word in that way before. And that's the sort of application that I'm really excited about from AI is this sort of creativity augmenting application, which we'll talk about more when you talk about Copysmith, but I really just feel like there's so there's so much territory in all dimensions. I'm just talking about text here, where we're like writing novels or documents. The AI will help us explore much more efficiently and quickly and explore territory that we might not even have arrived at without it. And I think this is just possible for all domains. Like I'm a writer, so I think about AI in that way. But I think so many people look at AI with this sort of fear that it will like replace them. But I think for a lot of disciplines, they should actually position themselves as this AI will actually augment my work. And how can I integrate this into my workflow proactively, such that AI plus human <laughs> is, is the default path forward and not AI. <laughs> I'm excited about it. <laughs> it's interesting. So personally excited about it and excited about the augmentation component of it, which is really interesting. Yeah. Exactly. I'm excited about it, but I think there are definitely things to be thought through that the AI community and industry more broadly needs to think about about the impacts of these algorithms. And just over this past year, I think conversation about that has increased dramatically. So for example, with the release of the movie Social Network, they had actors act out these AI in a way that made it really visceral. Like we are doing micro-targeting. What does that imply for like our news ecosystems and truth <laughs> construed <laughs> very broadly? But yeah, I think there's both a lot of excitement and I feel I'm an optimist. So this might not be entirely well considered, but I'm also aware of there are huge downsides that we are seeing already to some extent that we should be careful about mitigating and that companies need to be thoughtful about and incorporate into their internal and external facing practices, as well as researchers and the broader community. There are so many different stakeholders in the AI community, um, which makes it really unique. It's not just research breakthroughs, but research breakthroughs that are productizable and have enormous economic value. I think what's interesting is that in your LinkedIn, you know, you have this statement, which is a big one, which is like, say, by default, economists and AI researchers believe AI can automate away all human labor. With my work in research, I aim to help create a future where AI is beneficial for everyone. So what's interesting is that you actually imply that there is a fork in the road, right? You know, there is a, in terms of like everyone's belief is, but you're also saying that you are going to help steer it in the right direction. So I'm just kind of curious, what do you think are the things that would create that fork? This is a big question and something that I'm mulling over. So I would actually point to another entrepreneur here, slightly less famous than me, Elon Musk, who's working on Neuralink. 
And his express purpose with Neuralink is to keep humans updated at the rate of AI updating. So that's one extreme example of human AI augmentation, like literally embed a computer inside your brain so that you can interface with AI very closely. And I think there's things along that spectrum. So that's one side of the fork is like collaborating with AI, leveraging AI in your workflows, whether that be interacting with it as a piece of software or embedded in your brain, <laughs> there's a spectrum. But there's one fork where we, some people are either reject AI out of their own volition or are unable to access it. And we see this sort of fork between like employers have to choose between say like using AI or just using human labor. And I'm not an economist. This is just me talking to economists. By default, if AI can replace all human labor, which is what AI researchers believe, it will over time be cheaper than human labor. Therefore, the only economic incentive I understand is you always use the cheapest <laughs> if it's the same quality. So by default, all companies will be economically incentivized to employ AI labor instead of human labor. So the question that I've been really like sitting on is how can we make humans economically viable? <laughs> the extreme solution is Neuralink, which is like make us this next generation of humans that can interact with AI. But I think there are other tools to be built as well. And companies can be built sort of positioning themselves with respect to these different forks. They can position themselves as we're going to automate away jobs. Or you can position yourself as no, I want to make humans better at their jobs, reach new heights that you haven't seen before, make them way more productive. And I want to position myself to the latter fork. And even if it's not long term economically possible, I think it's on us to try. <laughs> and I want to make a serious effort at it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think you've got the firepower and the trajectory to do so and make a difference. And I think what's interesting, I mean, for myself, I trained as economist as undergrad. My honest thesis was on how technology adoption, you know, diffuses across the world and the speed of adoption. Great. You can correct me on everything. <laughs> yeah, you. How business school is very different as an MBA is very much. How do we leverage this? And like you said, you know. Not necessarily go for the cheapest, but increase the profit, right? I think obviously, you know, what's interesting, of course, is AI still seems like it's very much the early days, right? I mean, it's very much been a very esoteric domain expertise where people just couldn't access it. And over the past five years, as founders, we've seen like so many people start building like what I call bridges between AI and real life world cases, right? I mean, you don't need to be an engineer. Well, you had to be an engineer <laughs> to really understand Tesla self-driving car, but you would consume it. But now we're starting to see it trickle into B2B and SaaS, for which CopySmith is one of them. So what do you think is driving that bridge and growth? Again, please correct me on the economic incentives here because I'm likely getting them horribly wrong. But I think in terms of converting research, seeing tech transfer from the research pipeline of basic research all the way to something to product, basic research needs to deliver results that industry is excited about and then therefore industry will follow. So I think it is only recently that AI has really delivered state of the art results at a research level where like, oh, image classification just works now or text generation just works now. And then industry seeing those results or seeing those papers, and obviously these aren't binary, there's many, many AI researchers in industry now, and many companies have massive AI research labs precisely to leverage these sorts of insights but they create infrastructure around that. It's like, oh, I want to deploy more computer vision models. And therefore there's going to be more APIs 
and service. I mean, Amazon makes so much money off of AWS. Of course, they're going to offer Vision API. That's like core to their business, as well as infrastructure to help folks like develop more easily. So I would highlight one startup that I really like and admire, Cortex.dev, which was a YC open source startup that allows anybody to deploy machine learning models as an API very easily with just a YAML file. So this is a poor answer here and quite thin, but I think it's just, it's very recent that deep learning, well, as a revolution has happened, and then very recent that we've had the state of the art results that warrant significant industry investment and follow on effects from folks who have less and less ex- experience like directly with the technology, but can build on the infrastructure that from those who have come before. It's quite an interesting process to see coming from a background of studying how science progresses. Your science is also very incremental, but seeing this for the first time and seeing the activity around AI, you also see the other way or how that research extended also incrementally. Because now, for example, with GPT-3, that where you have an API that handles all your auto-scaling for you, has really fast inference time, you don't have to do any of it. Like you can just treat it as an API. P- folks are building no-code apps around it. And we're just really seeing how these different pieces can meet and how infrastructure can be built up in an ecosystem to bring it closer and closer to folks who have less and less expertise, which is amazing, I think. But I don't have a complete theory around that. It's just the research is there and the economic value is there. So people are coming. Yeah, it's interesting to see that trickle and it just keeps increasing. You know, as a kid, I used to be playing MUDs, you know, multi-user dungeons. So, you know, on Telnet. And so we play text and, you know, that used to be crafted by all of us, right? Everybody be contributing different rooms uh, for that. And for the past few months, I've been playing, you know, AI Dungeon through GPT-2 to GPT-3. And it's been a blast. And, you know, one thing I think about a little bit is if people could like download the transcripts, they'll be like, wow, this guy is really working hard to break the game or (laughs) do crazy shit, right? And I think it's interesting to see that consumerization is just making it easier and easier for AI to be accessible, Especially because, you know, AI is also trickling into like a lot of the back end, right? You know, it's like invisible to consumers, right? Because it's like better ad targeting, better personalization of feeds, better video curation, right? So, and I think it's also interesting from a different angle, which is we used to make this joke all the time is like AI is just statistics, right? <laughs> it's like, you know, in the past, you used to be scratch an AI company and they'd be like, oh, actually, we're doing regressions. And I'm like, they can't no, <laughs> like statistical analysis, which I'm happy for you to use, right? But I think now we're starting to see companies actually really use AI because it's so available, right? As a consumer, as a APIs. What are you excited about? What trends do you see for AI being rushing into and transforming more? I mean, one of course is marketing. Right, as a domain. I was actually going to mention specific type of machine learning. So right now we've seen obviously huge advances in NLP and text generation. And what I'm really excited just from like sort of an intellectual perspective is multimodal generation. Like can we generate completely new images and also caption them and label them? That unlocks huge data sets potentially for folks who are trying to do, for example, self-driving car safety. So I find that hugely fascinating. I think the domains here that I would highlight aren't 
showstoppers or like aren't surprising. I don't have a contrarian take here. Like I'm very excited for self-driving cars. I think that will have a huge impact. I think it's closer than we think since things keep getting delayed, but I think it is going to happen within the next decade. So I'm extremely excited about that. And I'm actually quite worried about increased personalization on the web for a number of reasons, but I think we are going to see it. I think we're going to absolutely move towards a world where it's not just ads that are personalized for you, but entire landing pages, website journeys that are dynamically generated and generated only for you for a segment of one. There are companies already working on this, but it's rare that the content is dynamically generated, which I think is actually a qualitative difference where you might see a web page and only you will be able to see it. You'll be able to share that URL, but it has only been shown to you. And maybe the founder themselves like would be surprised as to the content that's written on that page. But I think we're just going to see increased aggregation of data on a specific user and following their path through the web in a way that's unprecedented and potentially a little bit scary, but it will lead to higher click-through rates. (laughs) So there's a balance here. (laughs) That's exactly similar to what you're tackling, right? Yeah, we're not doing entirely personalized landing pages that I can tell you about what we are working on. I'm quite concerned about that use case. I think it's like quite unlikely that we would go down that route. I think of Copysmith very much as like an on, always on brainstorming partner. So right now what the product looks like is that you can plug in things that you know about your product and actually pull them directly from your website. What is just a simple description of what you do? And with one click, you can generate all types of content, like ads for all your different channels, Google, Facebook, Instagram, et cetera, generate product descriptions, SEO meta tags, different landing pages for different audience segments, blog posts, the whole nine yards. But it's not entirely personalized. We're not going down that route yet. My main goal with CopySys right now is how do we get users away from staring at that blank page? And the next step is how do we get users out of Google Sheets, (laughs) which is another problem that's not AI related, but just a managerial problem of people are not using a document type that's purpose made for copy. When they're editing Google ads, editing Facebook ads, it's in a Google spreadsheet most of the time and they ask their, their boss for feedback. And if you've ever done comments in Google spreadsheets, you know how horrible it is. You have to find the little yellow triangle in a very tiny cell and hover over it. So I see what we're doing as extremely different from personalization, but we're still focused on marketers. We're focused on unlocking their creative so that they can get to first draft like much more quickly, A-B test much more quickly, and really have a full feedback loop of, okay, I can use this tool to go to my managers, advocate for a certain campaign, certain ad spend, come back and actually evaluate, okay, through CopySmith, we did this course copy-based A-B test. This is statistically speaking, just like probably the best. Let's go sink more money onto that particular ad set and really complete the feedback loop, like this sort of ad and build that data set horizontally across industries. Like this is the sort of ad that we've seen perform well for companies like yourself. Agencies do this sort of curation for a huge segment of ad spend because they have some expertise of like what does well and what doesn't, but you could scale that up massively with the sort of exponentials that tech companies have access to. What are you personally excited about in building that out? Why are you excited to see be built on your platform? I am really excited about AI-assisted writing. So you probably heard a bit of the throw line, like I'm a writer, I spend a lot of time writing, I'm 80,000 words into my first novel, which I also started during COVID, very generative period for me, pun intended. (laughs) 
I'm, I'm really interested in the different ways AI and humans can interact. So the part of the product that I'm personally really fascinated by is and really motivated by is when I interview users and they're like, wow, I didn't think of that before. Or, oh, that's really interesting. Let's plug that back into CopySmith and see what it generates. So I'm really interested in this path of, oh, I started here and I just really have no idea what this campaign is gonna look like. And ending up after a few iterations, a million miles away from where you started. And it's territory that you might not have covered or you might have taken, it does take hours and days to cover without this brainstorming partner. And I'm excited for this sort of tool being available for everybody, not just folks who can access the world's top agencies for tens of thousands, many, many zeros <laughs> of dollars. I'm excited for folks to be able to access this sort of brainstorming power, no matter what size they are, because it really is a superpower. And it's a great equalizer, I think, creativity. A creative company does much better than a company that isn't compelling, isn't new, isn't different. Yeah, I always intend to get started writing on NaNoWriMo, which is the <laughs> National Novel Writing Month. And writer's block is always a big one when I'm manually writing. So yeah, I'm excited to see uh, AI ghostwriters uh, help me, uh, take me across the finish line. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Take you across the finish line or get you to the first step, which is also really hard. Editing is a lot easier than writing. Oh, for sure. Definitely. So, you know, what's interesting is also that as you've built this out, you know, you've really kind of like tackled the marketing as a use case. I mean, what do you think marketers would want something like this or tools like this or AI like this? We think this because they tell us this. <laughs> so many marketers are very technologically literate, very AI literate, and they've been hunting for something like this. I wish this were possible to be able to like draft copy with AI. It's a task that marketers have to do day in, day out, especially um, if they don't have an in-house copywriter. And a lot of companies don't. They either outsource to an agency or they have a um, part-time freelancer. It's only companies that really care about their brand voice and messaging where they hire a full-time in-house copywriter. So we've really seen it in interviews. I don't have a background in marketing. A few of the wonderful folks on our team have agency backgrounds backgrounds in marketing. So it's really a user pull versus me pushing and building for a marketing archetype or persona that I have in my mind. Because there, to be honest with you, there isn't one. I haven't done much marketing except for my own Shopify store, which I started last year while I was at OpenAI and made me start thinking about marketing in the first place. But I'm a horrible marketer. <laughs> I That Shopify store completely failed because I'm horrible at marketing. So I'm building for an archetype that I don't have in my head, but rather comes to me every day with feature feedback. Like we have a community Slack of around 200 people by now. They're like, Jasmine, I need this. <laughs> or can we do like a user interview on this flow? Because I don't think it makes sense for like my agency use case where I'm managing like 30 clients. So definitely like straight from folks who do this sort of work every day, then very much like a pull versus like a push um, product process. How do you approach those, uh, you know, conversations with marketers? I mean, you know, are you, do you go in and just like, hey, what do you wish AI could do for you? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, it's, it's a tool, right? But at the same time, it's a big catchy word as well. So I'm just kind of curious how you approach those user interviews. Yeah, the initial interviews that I had with folks were more like, how do you get ideas? Like, what does a brainstorming session look like? And what is the entire conceptualization process from beginning to end of a campaign? Like, what do you do? And it turns out that a lot of people have 
writing sessions that they do collaboratively for an hour or more at a time. Like they block out these chunks where they're just like with other folks on the team where they're like, okay, let's just like churn out 10 variants of Facebook headlines. And that was super interesting to me. And now that is something that now exists in CopySmith where you can just plug in keywords and you instantly get like a dozen variants of Facebook headlines, which would otherwise have taken that hour of work. So really at the beginning of user interviews, I was looking at, okay, what is the entire process? And this was largely also because I have no background in marketing, especially at like a high growth or a more established company. So what is this like very complex multi-stakeholder function? Who do you talk to? Like, what does your day look like? So very much like a discovery interview. And as a product became more involved, we're now doing more design interviews where you're like, okay, what were you surprised about in this product? Or like, what were you disappointed by? Were there things that made you go, oh, whoa, like, I'm curious about that. And I want to do more of that. So there's definitely a clear segmentation where initially I was just trying to figure out, okay, what does my like audience and user look like? And then afterwards, after something existed, doing more traditional like product interviews where we were like watching people use the product, understand like where they got stuck, any moments of like, uncertainty or like confusion or like wish for more. You know, what's interesting is that not only able to solve, you know, one problem, which is, you know, writing ads, but descriptions, metadata, landing pages, blog posts, which is kind of mind boggling, right? Because historically from a human perspective, all of those people are like, you know, five or six different people who specialize in each thing. But to you, it's just the same output, it's just different variations. Do you think that new approach of how to handle things, do you think that could unlock some new, I don't know, job roles, I guess, <laughs> you know, like AI shepherd? 100%. So uh, how I would position the Copysmith customer, and actually I'm going to introduce a new verb here. So I named Copysmith very intentionally, the Copysmith being similar to like silversmithing. So you put in raw input, you get out something that's useful, but it's up to the human ultimately to polish it, whether it be, oh, you know something about the specific brand guidelines and you're not able to tell an AI your 20 page <laughs> brand guideline that's in a PDF unparsable format, or you know about a specific promotion that's happening. Or I think the most important thing, you are entering into territory that your company has not gone into before. So even if we understand like, okay, this is your company context because we scraped your website and we know what you've done before. Maybe Coca-Cola wants to go like a totally different way for 2021, as everybody does. That is something that humans are uniquely good at. And I think, I wouldn't call it an AI shepherd. Uh, I'm not sure what I would call it. We've been calling them copysmithers, folks who do copysmithing. But I definitely think there will be new roles for folks who learn how to work with AI extremely effectively and really embrace like this new paradigm and way of creating whatever it is that they're doing creatively. It doesn't have to be just copy. They could be composing a piece of music. They could be trying to architect a new building. There's a lot of creative processes that I think there is a lot of manual labor right now that is quite tedious. Like it's really, really hard for a human to say the same thing in 10 different ways. We're just not programmed to do that. We get used to using the same patterns because they're efficient for us, just in terms of something like computational space in our heads. Like we just don't have that much memory. AIs are really good at that. AI is not good at knowing what is true. And it's not also not forward looking. So I think very much the role of the human in the workplace will evolve to knowing where we are headed, where we want to go, and like pointing this very powerful engine in that direction and sort of shaping 
its output versus doing the day-to-day, I wouldn't call it drudgery, but just very heavy lifting of doing this, like racking your brain for like different variants. So Shepard might be like an apt term. <laughs> I, I don't have a better term, like navigator. <laughs> wrangler. <laughs> AI wrangler. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, what's interesting is that we definitely see a ton of these, uh, you know, AI, and you touched upon something that's really interesting, which is that, you know, AI is really looking at the past, and we're trying to wrangle and doesn't have a good sense about what we're trying to aim for. Yeah, I sometimes say this to friends who don't understand AI or feel sort of threatened by AI, in acknowledging sort of that AI is the biggest thief. (laughs) It is stolen all of humanity's work. <laughs> it has been trained all of the data that humanity has ever produced. And when I use data, that's sort of a blunt term, but think like Bibles, think like all the holy texts, think everything important that anyone has ever written online, everybody's Tumblr blogs, like everything that is important and uh, vulnerable and people's best works of their lives, like AI has all of it. And we should not, therefore, in my opinion, feel ashamed or taken aback when AI can write at the level of a normal human. I'm almost like, of course, (laughs) like you have seen, you have been trained on all the data and using you in sort of a personified way, but like AI has been trained on all of this data that is so important to the history of humanity. Of course it can write in a way that it can look like a normal tweet or something. Um, But it's also fundamentally limited in that way. Um, It is, it is purely looking to the past. It's, it's hard to keep models up to date. Like GPT-3, for example, only has data up till 2019. It knows nothing about COVID. Maybe we're not, I'm not an expert in terms of, I'm not a high volume marketer, but I imagine that messaging has changed hugely in terms of how ads perform and what messages resonate with people over the course of 2020. AI cannot keep up in terms of the day-to-day changes, nor can it predict where our sense of taste what we value as like a species, what we care about and like want to think about going forward. And that's where humans come in. I think there will always be a role for humans because of that reason, not just for like a curational, sorry, curatorial purpose, um, but as like sort of a values defining and like trajectory setting in a, in a much deeper way um, in that direction setting sense. Are there approaches on how you would make it more forward looking? Do we have like a checkbox where we say, hey, AI, I know I really like donuts over the past 20 years of my life, but for the next five years, I would like to lose 20 pounds. Uh, so uh, <laughs> please stare at me in this angle and send me more stuff around nutrition and better fitness. I mean, that that's super interesting. I would say yes, just because I can imagine algorithmic systems doing that. And I'm not an expert on recommendations systems or algorithms. But there have been a lot of complaints from the humane technology community of technology responds to my wants, but not for my needs or my long-term vision of like who and what kind of person I want to be. So I imagine this is technologically possible, but whether it's economically viable or desirable. So again, the question of economics, which I'm not very familiar with, I'm not sure if it's economically incentivized for Facebook to help you, Jeremy, lose weight, unless there's something they can sell you (laughs) around that. So I totally buy that it's technologically possible. And you probably don't even need AI, because that's a very explicit set of preferences that you would be giving a system. It's like, 
hey, Facebook, you've been showing me a lot of ads for donuts. I don't want donuts anymore. Like, please show me ads for salads <laughs> and weight loss plans. I'm sure Facebook, if they so desired, would be able to do that technologically. And the question, again, comes down to economics. Well, I mean, I think economics is there, right? I mean, people spend billions of dollars on gyms, of <laughs> which a lot of is unused. They spend billions of dollars on salads and all kinds of high-level aspirational stuff. So I think, yeah, definitely there's a lot of stuff there. Of course, it may not necessarily be business-generated, but it'd be more user-generated because Dunkin' Donuts' job is to sell donuts from their perspective, whereas the consumer knows best about their future direction, right? Mm -hmm. And how to transcend that. Have you ever thought about AI as coaches, coaching services? Yeah, I, I've seen a few interesting forays into this space. And I've actually had a lot of coaches. <laughs> I've had a writing coach, productivity coach, life coach, the whole nine yards. And a lot of the value that I derive from having a coach is having the sense that someone is listening, not the exact content of what they tell me. So I'm very curious as to, I haven't explored a lot of these AI coaching solutions, but definitely one question, if I were approaching them from a perspective of a user or a potential angel investor is what sort of value do you think people typically derive from coaching? And what do you think people would want to derive from your service? In terms of content, my background in NLP is actually not in general of NLP, but in dialogue models. So I've been I've thought about the coaching use case before. You could probably personalize it to some extent. You wouldn't be able to personalize it down to user segment of one just because of the costs of like if you wanted to fine tune a model and maybe just to back up very quickly. Natural language processing models only have a certain window in which they can retain information. You can think of them as extremely forgetful human beings. So you can only have a very short conversation with a model where it remembers everything that you discussed. So you only really have two options. You could fine tune a model on a user, like just know all the information about them. And therefore you don't have this context window that's sort of particular to a particular user, but rather one model, one user, this would be far too expensive. We don't have methods for doing this yet. Well, depending on the pricing models of these AI coaches where we could do that. Or you just have, frankly, a crappy coach who forgets what you told them yesterday. So right now, I don't think it's super viable, but I'd be very happy to be proven wrong. And I think the world would benefit from having coaching en masse. I think it's like one of the things that has unlocked like a ton of value in my life. And I wish more people were able to access. So I'm excited about it. But I definitely think there are still challenges, both from just like a product perspective of I, I care because the coach is listening to me. Like that's the value I derive from coaches. Also some like technical slash like business margin challenges as well with the products. That's so true. And I think it's interesting that you framed it up as not just the output, which is like telling you to do A or B, <laughs> but also the listening side, right? The accountability, uh, the companionship side of it. And it's interesting. I mean, we definitely see a lot of different approaches right now, like with Replica and other approaches where they're really working the angle of not necessarily accountability, but definitely companionship. It reminds me of Tamagotchis and Neopad <laughs> back in the day, right? You know, you stick a cute little you know, face on it. You know, every AI is childlike right now so that, you yeah. know, you can give it for being forgetful. So there's a huge empathy component. And one thing I always remember from my friends who are also dealing with robots and everything is they see examples of great empathy with AI or robots. And there's also a lot of violence against AI and robots. There's a weird bifurcation or dispersion of that human reaction to it. 
What do you think about that? This is a super interesting question. And I'd be curious, having not read the studies on the topic, if there's overlap between those two audiences or populations, is there a bifurcation where a population treats robots and anthropomorphized like agents like really well, and then some who treat them horribly? It's interesting. I'll try to offer two unintuitive thoughts. One, I think making it easier to empathize with AI has its dangers or downsides. It's not necessarily a good thing um, because it might allow us to or prompt us to trust the AI more than is warranted. Um, so, for example, there was a study, I forget the author now, where a bot was let into a Harvard dorm because it simply requested access. It was like, can you let me into the dorm? I'm making a delivery. And something like 70% plus of the students let them in. And this is like a highly guarded campus where they have like carded access on the doors. And it was meant to simulate very violent things like a bomb threat, like a robot could have gone in and um, easily violated the security of that building. And it was a smiling robot. (laughs) So scenarios like that, where we really need to make sure that trust is well calibrated and trust is warranted by a system before we trust it. And to use more language or economics, I don't think a cute face is an accurate signal for that sort of trust. We need to trust that a system is reliable. There have been different systems set up for certifying the safety of certain systems in other industries. AI might, and under my impression, should move towards that sort of model. And those sorts of signals are real signals for safety. We would not get into an airplane just because it has a smiley face on it, but we might trust a robot because it has a smiley face on it. And that worries me. So that's one unintuitive thought maybe for maybe we shouldn't be so empathic with robots. And then for people who are really violent with robots, there was a study by, I'm not sure who posited this, but they said that one of their concerns around people treating anthropomorphized robots violently was that it might cause them to lower their standards for how they treated other humans. So robots, if they're made to look like humans, can feel like moral patients. And if we just violate that by beating them or treating them terribly, there was a stance that we might therefore treat humans in our lives equally poorly or lower our standards just generally for how we treat other sentient beings. If we know that this robot is non-sentient, but looks somewhat sentient, it might affect our and color our perspectives or other sentient beings. That's really interesting because there's so much difficulty. And I think the good insight here I have is that maybe there isn't a difference between those who care about it versus those who do violence, right? And maybe their empathy is also driving that violence. That's actually a, a really good insight, by the way. Mm-hmm. And we'll make sure to link to all those like philosophers and papers in the on the website transcript. We'll do some digging. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <Cool. laughs> Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Jasmine. I really appreciate you taking the time to share your journey. Thanks so much, Jeremy. This was a fun conversation (laughs) where we talked far too much about economics, a subject that I know nothing about. (laughs) But yeah, very fun. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, I look forward to doubling down and revisiting this topic and see how our predictions and thoughts have evolved. (laughs) We'll likely be hugely wrong, um, but it's good that we make (laughs) predictions. We become better at forecasting. (laughs) Thanks so much, Jeremy.